0: I want to invite you to open up to Matthew's Gospel this morning. We are making a transition and a turn. We have been throughout the summer in the book of 1 Samuel. Today we are going to begin a series on and walking through the Sermon on the Mount, perhaps the most famous of all of sermons that have ever been delivered and given. We will pick back up in 1 Samuel, uh, really 2 Samuel, beginning in the spring, but we will spend the majority of our time this fall uh, walking through some of the most famous of all words and the most famous of all sermons uh, here as Jesus delivers and he speaks to his people. If I were to ask you this morning, in a general sense, do you consider yourself to be a happy person? How would you answer that question? Psychologists have come up with happiness scales where they can evaluate your level of happiness today, believe it or not. And they can determine whether or not you are in general a happy person or whether you are a curmudgeon like the person sitting next to you right now. There are scales and there are levels of happiness, believe it or not. And many people within our world, they would send to, to tell us and to argue and to make a quite a compelling argument that the goal of life is just simply to be happy, to find a, a mate to marry, to find a boyfriend or a girlfriend, or to have children, or, or perhaps to buy the best house on the block, or to have the best and fanciest cars, or to have the best vocation, but to pursue your happiness. Somewhere around the 1950s, preachers began to wrestle with that motivation of people And they began to see that many people were pursuing happiness to the neglect of the gospel. And so what preachers began to do, they began to take words in the scripture in order to communicate to God's people. And they began as a fairly recent invention over the past 50 or 60 years, they began to distinguish between what we understand as joy in the Bible versus happiness. And we began to make arguments according to scripture that there was a vast difference between being happy and having joy and contentment in the Lord. And that is really rather a quite new invention. And it was done as a response to many people within our culture that were pursuing happiness to the neglect of the gospel. And so we were trying to do our best To help folks understand, but I would make the argument with you today and I hold the contention that in the scriptures, Old and New Testament, that joy and happiness are almost one of the same things. They're like the heads and the tails of every coin. And and to dissociate the idea of happiness from joy, to to make those two completely separate things, is really something that the Bible would would be immune to and and really unheard of and the early Christians would not quite understand. Now, make no mistake, there is a difference, but it is a a subtle difference. In Jesus' most famous words, he talks about the idea of happiness, believe it or not. And he couches it in the understanding of the word blessed, Blessed are those that do the following, and it comes from a, a Greek word, markarios, which literally means to be happy or to have favor from God. Years ago, at a previously, previous church that I pastored, I would come in contact with this gentleman, and every time that you saw him, you'd ask him how he was doing, and he would always say, I'm so blessed. It didn't matter what he had gone through or where he had been that week. And it didn't matter how long you hadn't seen him from the time before. But you'd say, Brother Don, how you doing today? And he'd say, I'm so blessed. And after several years of this back and forth and sort of my pessimism that comes out, I just asked him one day when he said, Don, how you doing? And he said, I'm blessed. And I said, but are you really? Like truthfully, do you always feel that way? Is that how you are all the time? And, and he paused in that moment and he said, well, you know what? One of the things that I've learned in my life is that me being blessed has nothing to do with my circumstances. And what I've gone through that week, but it's a state of mind and it's a posture that, that I chose to adapt. And, and I saw this work itself out in his life one day when I got a call on a Sunday evening around 9 o'clock. And it was a call that you don't want to get as a pastor. And I was asked if I could cope to a house that was about 15 miles from mine where Don and Judy Littlefield were, where they had just gotten news that their son had been shot and murdered. And so you go that Sunday evening and you show up at the house and see his, their son was good friends with the Navy sniper, Chris Kyle. And Chad Littlefield was there in, in Glen Rose or in Granbury when that man took Chris's life and also proceeded to take Chad's life. And I walked into that house and, and I saw my friends, Don and, and Judy, and we, we cried a whole lot that night and we cried a whole lot in the, in the days to come, but as I walked through that process with them and learned a lot as a pastor, I began to be reminded of, as I asked Don, each and every time I'd call him up and I'd see him and I'd say, how you doing? And, and he would still say, I'm blessed. He would still say, I'm, I'm better than I deserve. Every year on the anniversary of, of Chad's death I call Don and Judy if I can go see them I'll drive over to DeSoto Texas to go by their house and if I can't get over there I'll call them on the phone and just let them know that I'm thinking about you and every time that I that I talk to them both we we may cry a little bit we may weep a little bit together but but they always end up saying you know I'm still blessed Jesus has a word for those people that endured hardship and endured pain And he delivers what is uh, most famously, the most famous of all sermons, perhaps uh, one of the most important sermons that is ever delivered as he begins to speak to a a people who are hurting and who are going through hardship and don't quite understand. And so we pick up beginning in verse 1 of Matthew's gospel in chapter 5 where God's word says to us this morning, seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. All this past week I went back and forth trying to decide if I was going to take the Beatitudes verse by verse or to pair them together in groups of two or groups of three and, and no doubt you can read many of the sermons that have been delivered by guys like Martin Lloyd-Jones and Sinclair Ferguson and John Stott and you would know there is a variety of ways to, to deliver and to study the Beatitudes but one of the things that I became convinced of this past week is that these Beatitudes were not meant to be read in isolation from one another. But rather they're meant to be understood in, in light of, of all eight that are, that are there that Jesus speaks and he delivers to God's people once and for all because of what he does towards the very end and, and we'll show you that here in just a moment. But I want to look back beginning in verse three where he gives the first beatitude and he simply just says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. What Jesus is doing this, in this moment is he is describing the character and the nature and the, and the attitude and the temperament of how the believer who has been redeemed by the blood of Christ, is to live their life in in tandem with what we see Paul say in the fruit of the Spirit. These are characteristics of how the people of God should live and what should be portrayed in them. And he simply just says, blessed are the poor in spirit. If you were to read Luke's commentary of this beatitude, someone rendered Luke's translation of Jesus' words as just simply meaning, blessed are those who live in a perpetual state of poverty. Friend, can I tell you this morning that that is not the understanding that Jesus would have had, nor the disciples would have understood that poverty is not something that we should endorse and embrace and seek to live in a place of poverty as if living in a perpetual state of poverty would get us closer to the Lord God Almighty. But rather what Jesus means in this moment as D.A. Carson, the formidable New Testament scholar, just simply says that what Jesus means by blessed are the poor in spirit, that this is the deepest form of repentance that a believer can occupy is to understand that we as a people are spiritually bankrupt before a holy God. And that we must understand our place in light of his holiness when Jesus says blessed are the poor in spirit it means that we as a people are embracing not a one-time prayer that we prayed as a young child but rather a daily dependence upon God for every single thing that we need it's a posture and it's a position That we never outgrow, we don't look past, but we rather we occupy this place. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. One of my favorite pastors and authors throughout the year, the older I get, the more I tend to gravitate towards him as James Montgomery Boyce. And what he says about this verse is just simply this, the idea that we would be poor in spirit, poverty in our spirit, dependent upon God, is the realization for the believer that God only fills empty hands up. He can't fill a cup or some hands that have been occupied by other meaningless things. My youngest daughter, Lucy, who is three years old, yesterday, as we sat and ate lunch, and she looked at me and she said, "'Dad, fill my cup up.'" (laughs) And I said, young lady, you need to remember who you're talking to right now. I know you're as cute as they come, and I'll be glad to fill your cup, but you might be wise to look into your cup because I can see in your cup, and your cup already has water in it. And she said, fill my cup. And I said, Lucy, I can't fill a cup that already has something in it. Why don't you drink what I gave you 30 minutes ago, and then I will fill that cup up once again. Spiritually speaking, you know, that's how our relationship with the Lord Jesus is, that he only fills up things that that are empty and that recognize our poverty and our place before God, that we are dependent upon him. And so then we ask God to fill us with his spirit and, and to give us his unction. Jesus goes on and he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This idea of of mourning means that we are connected closely enough to people to empathize with them, to understand the state that they are in, that we mourn over our own sin, but we also mourn over the sins of other people and we enter into their hardships with them. And we come alongside them in their difficulties and and we see not just our own sin but we see their sin before God and and so we mourn with them, we mourn alongside them. Mourning means that we are relationally connected enough to other people. I think perhaps one of the reasons why many of us don't mourn over the sins of, of other people is perhaps because we're not connected closely enough with other people. Certainly we're connected with our, our families and, and those that we come in contact with on a regular basis, but can I tell you that in this moment, as Jesus talks about, blessed are those who, who mourn and being connected to someone physically and emotionally, and even the hurts that our culture and society experience, it means that we are connected relationally. How we say that around here is we just say, we value the circle more than we value the row. We love that you're in the row. And we love that you come to this beautiful sanctuary to worship with us and to sing songs and to hear many of our gifted members display their gifts before God and before you. But this is not meant and and this is not enough to satisfy us for the rest of the week. Or rather, we need to be in groups with one another, in circles with one another, sitting shoulder to shoulder and arm to arm and, and being connected so that we can mourn when those that mourn, we can rejoice when those that rejoice, we can value our circle, being willing to enter into the pain of others. But notice in verse 5, Jesus keeps going and he says, not only are you blessed for those that mourn, but blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the kingdom of earth, of God. What Jesus means in this moment is not that you would be a a footstool or a doormat for other people, not in your humility would you get run over by other people and get taken advantage of. Jesus is not speaking to that, but rather understanding that meekness in the eyes of the kingdom and in the the word of God is leveraging the position of, of power or privilege that we have and yielding it to the life of another. We saw this in Jonathan's life, did we not, a couple of weeks ago where he gives up the position that he was rightfully owed as being Saul's son, and he gives it to David, who would be better than him, to serve. And, and as God's anointed, meekness is simply leveraging what God has given us to serve others and not exalt ourselves. Jesus goes on and he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. What Jesus means in that moment, quite simply, And most literally, is that our fellowship with God should be the thing that drives us above everything else. Do you know that even in your marriages, one of the reasons why we get married, that God would teach us some things, is that ultimately He teaches that no matter how lovely our spouses are, they still, even in that relationship, cannot do what only God can do. And they are not meant to replace our fellowship and our relationship with God, but rather it's two people that are communing with God and walking with him that then God brings together to come alongside to help hold up hands and and to lift up our heads with one another as we pursue God. But we crave our fellowship with God above everything else that we do. Our union with Christ. Walking with him intimately in the fellowship, and the relational aspect of what it means to know Jesus. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed, verse 7, are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Of all the Beatitudes this week, this perhaps was the one that most resonated with me personally. Not because I needed to be merciful in anyone in my life, though I need that mercy and to extend that mercy, but as we look out into the culture of our world, is that not what people need? That mercy is the thing, friends, that triumphs over judgment. Too many in our world are just seeking to judge and to condemn and to accuse. Not just lost people that don't know Jesus. Friends, can I tell you this that we ought to come to a place. Where we recognize that lost people are going to act like lost people. And that we need to quit assuming that they're going to act like we should or we do. And just recognize that they're going to do what they do. But the standard and the calling to live a higher life called according to the Beatitudes and the line and the map that God has given us. Is that we as believers are the ones that are called to be like Christ. And too often we find and we see, and perhaps we are the guilty ones in the midst of this, that as saved, born again believers, we take upon the behavior and the actions of the world. Friend, can I tell you this kindly and, and pastorally? What if God? forgave your sins only according to the measure in which you forgive other people. What if that was his litmus test for your life and for my life? According to the measure that you show mercy is the measure to which he will be merciful to you. Friend, thanks be to God that he does not shower his mercy upon us based upon how we show and give mercy to others. But would it be true of him that he would still be merciful to us? As merciful as we are to other people, that he is a kind and a merciful God, though he is a just God, and, and so blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Verse eight, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Being pure in heart just simply means those who keep their hearts free of the things that grieve God. This includes our actions and our behaviors. It includes our thought patterns and and how we think about things, how we feel about things. Making sure that we are pursuing blessed being pure in heart for they shall see God. That we are keeping our hearts and our lives not entangled. In the things of this world, but rather in the things that would only please God and not grieve Him. Blessed are the peacemakers, verse 9, for they shall be called sons of God. Can I tell you that not only do we need more merciful people in this world, can I tell you that we need less contentious people in this world and more peacemakers in this world? Do you know one of the characteristics of a a peacemaker is is they are someone that doesn't have to always be right. They are someone that doesn't always have to be heard, but rather seeks to, to see and to bring about peace, who prioritizes the welfare of another individual to the neglect, sometimes even of their own self. And Jesus says, blessed are these people. I told you in the beginning that the word blessed, it comes from a Greek word, makarios, that that can mean happy. Although I think it would be disingenuous to read, happy are the peacemakers, for they shall be called, and happy, so on and so forth. There is a, a notion to this. And can I say that that to many of us today, maybe perhaps the word of the Lord for us this morning at Travis Avenue Baptist Church is that we would practice living in a posture of being blessed and displaying the happiness that comes alongside with walking in faithful obedience to God. And for some of us, perhaps even behind our mask that we wear, both literally and perhaps even spiritually, that we would just learn a little bit to smile every once in a while, (laughs) to show kindness and and compassion to one another, to, to live in the truth of the gospel, to speak out against the things that we see are evil and wrong and contrary to God's word. But that we would be a, a people massed in joy. The joy that comes with faithfully following God and, and seeking for his welfare and not our own to be the peacemakers. That he says we will be blessed in so doing. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I'll just add this and. Passing, He doesn't say blessed are those who are persecuted because you make bad choices and decisions. He doesn't say blessed are those that are persecuted because you yelled at people on Twitter or were passive aggressive to them and you got attacked in the comment thread. Friend, you deserve that. He says blessed are those that are persecuted for righteousness sake who are rightly living out the gospel of Jesus in faithful obedience, blessed are you when you practice these characteristics and you practice this posture that ought to be of all believers for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice, my friend, and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Most people will end a sermon on the Beatitudes at verse 12. But one of the things that God convicted me of and sort of understanding the Beatitudes as a whole is why would God say all of these things to be blessed in such a way and then just to say go from this place and, and go live your life and do what it is that you want to do or only be blessed when you come to church. Only be blessed when you hear your favorite musician or your favorite text preach or when things go your way. No, what Jesus begins to do in this moment is he connects all of the blessed, all of the happiness, all the things that come with walking. And then he sends his church out into the world, connecting it with verses 13 and follow. And these things work closely together to inform our understanding of the Beatitudes. For he says in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. But as salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. I think perhaps this is one of the most often misunderstood words of Jesus here in this moment. Oftentimes we take the idea of salt as as this idea primarily and only of, of prevention of decay. To keep something from, from rotting away years ago when I was just a freshman at Dallas Baptist University I, uh, with a buddy of mine, we uh, went hunting during hunting season. That's what you did when you grew up in East Texas and uh, he happened to shoot a deer on this trip and, and we had to get back to make it to classes the following day and so we loaded that deer carcass in the back of our pickup truck and drove eight hours to get back to campus but we weren't done with that deer And so what we did without the blessing of the president of the university or the executive vice president and without the blessing of the security team and the RAs and GAs and all those, we went out just off the parking lot and we strung that deer up by by its hind legs and we began to skin that deer. You should have seen the faces of all the, the freshman girls that showed back up. And my friend and I, we were, we were covered in, in deer guts and uh, all kinds of other things. And we decided that, that deer was so beautiful that we were going to tan that hide. And I didn't know how to tan a hide, but he just said, listen, all we got to do is once we rip this skin off this deer carcass, we're just going to throw a bunch of salt on it and we'll just leave it out here in the parking lot for a couple of days <laughs> until we can take it to be adequately tanned. Well, friend, I can tell you that when you've got a a deer strung up by its hind legs and you've got blood and guts on the side and you, in fact, are covered in blood and guts and and you have this hide that's sitting there covered in salt as all the freshmen come back and they see this, I can promise you that deer hide didn't make it too long on the parking lot of DBU. (laughs) And we lost that hide, I'm sorry to say. Security confiscated it. They told us they would kick us off this campus if we did not remove that deer immediately and go take it to where it belongs. And so we did it, but we covered that hide and salt to preserve it. And oftentimes we will take understandings of what salt does and we will sort of inform that into the idea of the scripture. But, but can I say that, that in this moment what Jesus is talking about is not a defensive posture to prevent decay, the decay of the world. Rather, what he's doing is he's making an argument not for Christians to be on the defensive, but rather to be on the offensive. And what he means in is that we as salt in this world, salt is meant to be savory, A little bit of salt in a meal here and there can make all the difference in the world and it gives it taste and it gives it flavor and it makes it better. Friend, can I tell you this this morning that if we are walking in a posture of being blessed as Jesus commands, then we ought to make the world better because we are there. And the culture ought to be different and it ought to be better. And it ought to be more savory because Christ has called his people to not live in the world because we are not called to live for this world. But yet he has put us here at this time and and in this year and in this place so that we could be the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world, verse 14. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. You don't light a lamp and put it under a basket, but rather you put it on a stand and it gives light to all that are in the house in the same way. As you walk in this position of being blessed and and enacting these beatitudes, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the posture of what God has called his people to live in. One of the things that I learned from my friend Don, as I walked alongside him and his wife, Judy, who are still friends with me today and They still call me their pastor, even though I'm here in Fort Worth. Don taught me a remarkable thing then when his son's life was tragically taken. And it's a lesson that I still today, to this day, and still seeking to learn, but for Don and and if I were to be here today and he would stand before you, he would just simply tell you this, that this whole idea that Jesus speaks about, about being blessed and, and happy in the context of our relationship with the Lord, that being blessed and happiness is not a set of circumstances, but rather it is the fruit of a right relationship with God. That's why he, in the midst of his son dying, could still say, I'm blessed. And I'm still choosing to trust God that he's good, even in the midst of these things. You see, the Lord had gotten a hold of Don's life early on as a teenager. And so he lived out that blessed posture. He lived out that state of happiness despite something tragically happening. Does he still struggle with uh, doubt and, and guilt? Does he still get bitter at times? Does he still hurt and feel anguish that his son is, is no longer here? You betcha he does. Every day he does. But yet even in the midst of that, he chooses to live in a position that is a response to the gospel and that Christ has captivated his heart. And so he chooses to occupy a position of being blessed, even though things are tough. Friend, I don't know where you are today. I don't know what you've been doing or dabbling in. I don't know what areas of your life perhaps you would say, I'm not walking in obedience to the Lord Jesus. And, friend, can I just tell you as gently and kindly to plead with you as one of your pastors and elders to to stop and to turn from that sin and to turn to the Lord? The Bible tells us that He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, He is merciful despite our sins. And he is compassionate and he is kind. And I plead with you today to call upon his name if you do not know him, to receive him. We sang a a new song to, to this group, He Will Hold Me Fast. It's one of my favorite newer hymns that have come around and one of the reasons why that I love that song so much is because in college my life was radically changed when I began to understand that the gospel of Jesus was not how tightly I was holding on to him but was a realization that the gospel was about how tightly he was holding on to me. So I didn't have to hold on because he was holding me. Friend, can I tell you this today? Christ in his goodness is holding on to you that your salvation is not dependent upon your good works and your enacting these beatitudes, but it is dependent solely and squarely on the sovereign hand and the firm grip of our good God. And friend, can I just tell you, can you rest in that today? Can you find peace in that truth today? Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you that... You have forgiven us our sins in Christ. That you have given us the gift of your Holy Spirit to change us. And so, Father, we pray that today you would change us according to your word, not the words of man or manipulation, Father, but your eternal word. And, Father, we would abide in you today. Father, we are a blessed people. Father, I pray that you would help many in here today, myself included, to be able to rest in that position today. That you would help us be merciful, that you would help us comfort, that you would help us bring peace, that you would help us hunger and thirst for righteousness and nothing else. So Father, would you purify your people this morning, we ask and we pray these things in the precious name of Christ and God's people said, Amen.